Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison of Crash.net and I'm delighted to say that with me today are David Emmett. Hello. David Emmett of Modomatters.com, of course, and Stephen English. Hi, Neil. Stephen English, of course, World Superbike commentator for the Dorna TV feed. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today for the latest show. Okay, so we're basically just over a week on from the Grand Prix of Aragon. Um, uh, firstly, apologies that we weren't able to bring a show to you after that race. Um, one member of this uh, of this parish was suffering very badly from flu, but uh, David, you're managing to to look in some way human. Oh yeah, I'm much recovered. Thank you very much. But I was indeed very very ill. Um, uh, I uh, the, because we were all staying in a house together up in um, uh, uh, in Aragon or just outside uh, Aragon, and uh, on Monday morning I went upstairs to say uh, goodbye to Tony and to uh, and, and to Pete McLaren, and their comment was, "By God, you look like shit." So um, yeah, I was uh, there was basically if we'd have tried to record a podcast last week, it would have been about fifteen minutes of coughing and then uh, a little bit of swearing, and that would have been it. <laughs> and it, absolutely so vastly yeah. different well, to normal Dave <laughs> yeah on, only with more coughing <laughs> would have been an improvement says some of our listeners I'm sure yeah, I'm <laughs> sure I'm sure so as we're as we're, we've moved on a few well a week from uh, from Aragon we're not going to so much focus on uh, on what happened there but do a more uh, more of a preview for the the final uh, four runs of the season and the flyaways. Uh, Mark Marquez obviously was the victor in Aragon and did so in quite dominating style uh, with Jorge Lorenzo finishing second and Valentino Rossi finishing third. Uh, David, for you, was this pretty much the, the ride that allowed Marquez to put one one hand on the trophy, the championship trophy? Yes. And to be perfectly frank, I wasn't really that surprised that, um, uh, that he came away uh, having won the race, he looked so in- incredibly strong just all throughout the weekend. Um, and again at Misano, he said that uh, Misano had been one of those races that he'd put in his calendar where he'd been expecting to struggle and maybe lose a lot of points. Uh, and he'd come away from there not having lost as many points as he feared. Um, and then this was a race that he had in his, marked in his calendar as, as a place where maybe he could make up some points. Um, he certainly did that. There was never any, never really any question that he was going to win the race um and yeah this uh, it really gives him it gives him i think a 52 point lead going into the uh going into the flyaways um the chances of him actually rep- wrapping up at the first race Mategi are fairly non-existent but you've got to think that um uh by the time that they leave or well by the time that the Phillip Island race is finished, um, he's going to be crowned champion. Yeah. Do you see any way back for the Yamaha men from here, Stephen? No, not really. I think with the the lead that uh, Marquez has at this stage, it's 52 points. There's four rounds to go, 100 points up for grabs. Unless Mark gets injured, you can't really see how he can give up that many points, especially this year when we've just seen how consistent Mark has become. I think France is really the only outlier that we've seen from Marquez where he had a crash, he was able to remount and still score a handful of points. I think he got three or four points that day. But other than that, he's consistently been a top five finisher, consistently been able to reel in those uh, crashes which blighted him in the past. And now he's just grinding out results when the bike's been capable of winning, whether it was Argentina, Coda, last time out in Aragon, he's been able to do that. I think he's got four wins, a lot of podiums, a lot of top fives. And 
it's actually that consistency that's been the impressive thing for Marquez because David, I'm sure you'll agree that we've always been really impressed by the flat out speed of Mark, but to see him actually wind that back on Sundays and just settle for a fourth place finish, settle for the likes of you know uh, a fourth, uh, a third or a fourth place finish like in Bruno in difficult conditions, I think that's really been what has stood uh, out for me with Marquez this year and what's made him the or will make him the world champion. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think settling for fourth is the most impressive uh, thing that I've seen uh, uh, that I've seen from him this year because last year there was absolutely no way he was going to do that and he ended up on the floor too often. Um, but I think it's also worth pointing out that uh, Honda, uh, he has had some help from Honda. Um, the Honda ha- um, really has improved, especially... Uh, certainly since since the summer break, um, uh, perhaps even since the Barcelona test, they've had some uh, they've had some new electronics. The electronics, uh, the the Honda people seem to have the electronics under control. The bike is behaving a lot better. To a certain extent, you also see it uh, with Cal Crutchlow's uh, performance because Cal Crutchlow is having a much stronger um, uh, second half of the se- uh, second half of the season. He's not falling off as much as he was in, uh, uh, in the first part of the season. So, you know, clearly the bike is uh, easier to manage. And so I think, I mean, I still think that the Yamaha is the best bike on the grid at the moment, but uh, the gap which they had in the first sort of three or four races has been brought back a long way. And I think it's definitely, um, uh, the Honda is a much more competitive package. It means that uh, Mark has, can get closer to the front and um, and it makes it much easier for him to it also makes it much easier for him to accept being fourth knowing that uh, he, he will be able of, of winning races in the future I think you could see that at one point in the race um, we could see that that kind of right left flick before the back straight uh, Mark was passing basically everyone uh, at the, the left hand corner of that before they, they went onto the back straight I think he passed pretty much all the leaders when he was coming back through the field carving up and there was one time where he passed Rossi went in quite hot was wide on the exit and Rossi seemed to get better drive and you just thought Rossi's just going to drive past him easily along this straight here but Marquez managed to get the acceleration despite not being on the ideal line um, and managed to hold Rossi off all the way up the, the final straight to the final corner and you just thought um, if that had happened that that had occurred in the first half of the season you know the Yamaha would have left the Honda for dead and I think that shows you know kind of the the strides that they've made with the the acceleration the electronics that you were referencing there David um, in, in recent races yeah, exactly. There are still clearly problems because if you saw uh, Marquez up against the um, uh, up against Maverick Vinales, that um, uh, he was having real problems, sort of in the fir- in the first one or two laps, sort of sticking with him. Uh, it, it, it's you know not as not as clear cut. Again, that's also a a sign of the progress made by Suzuki. But certainly the the, the start of the season that was um, uh, or, or yeah last year. You just wouldn't you wouldn't have believed that the that the uh, uh, the Suzuki would would struggle against or w- would be able to beat the Honda. Yeah, and can I just play devil's advocate with the two of you because obviously you're both in the 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 GP paddock a lot more than me this year. But if we look back to last season, we saw a lot of times where the Honda really did struggle with that acceleration with the electronics package. If you remember back to Le Mans, I think that was probably the best example because we saw Marquez just being slaughtered by Ione. Before it became horsepower, it was just about drive grip and uh, the Ducati rider was consistently able to get in the gas harder 
and uh, out accelerate the Honda. Whereas for most of the season, we've heard about the limitations of the spec electronics package, but just having those developments taken out of HRC's hands and have to use the spec electronics, do you think has that actually helped Honda slightly over the course of the season compared to what we saw over the last few years where it looked like they almost got a bit lost with the electronics package? Uh, to me, I think it's the other way around. I think um, uh, it, it looked much more like the... Um, the spec electronics went against Honda's culture, if you want, of doing everything their own way. And it took them sort of about four or five months to figure out uh, a way to turn the spec electronics away, around a way, uh, if you like, an approach to actually be able to use them the way that they want to use them. Um, as far as I can, I mean... I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody can see inside HRC. But as far as I can sort of uh, make out, they have a. Uh, they found tools to put were put on top of the spec electronics, which have made it a lot easier for them to actually tweak the electronics, uh, and so they can make changes faster and get and, and make all the get get the electronics to do all the things which they want them uh, uh, to do. And the electronics are still very very sophisticated. So um, uh, yeah, I think they made. I, mean, I think they just made progress really yeah because that was probably one of the the standard articles that we saw in in the current quarters mcn sport was just where matt oxley was talking about the differences that we've seen with the electronics this year and looking at the telemetry looking at uh, what riders had to comment and i think it's been interesting just to see that even though we've talked about it and we've written about it that there was a step back from the electronics just that for by by and large it wasn't that big a drop off there were different areas now that are stronger different areas that are weaker but as you say, David, it's just a case of trying to learn and understand those packages and make them work for what you need to do with the bike. Yeah, absolutely. It's just it is. It's exactly as you say. It's it's a question of understanding them and learning to get the best out of them. And I think certainly the factory teams have got there. And then we can only hope that perhaps the satellite teams will get there next year once they get some hand-me-down knowledge from the factories. So if we can safely assume that Marquez is more or less got one hand on the title. Um, we There's only 14 points difference between the two movie star Yamahas. Uh, Valentino Rossi is 14 ahead of Jorge Lorenzo. Um, we saw Lorenzo struggling, I guess, through most of uh, most of the Aragon weekend. He obviously had that strange crash on Sunday morning. Um, I think he even admitted after the race that he was expecting to finish sixth or seventh, quite far away from the, the race winner and, and the kind of the five for the lead. Um, yet we saw him looking really competitive and, you know, taking on Rossi at his own game and coming home ahead and celebrating like a victory. Were you surprised uh, to see Lorenzo um, coming out fighting in this way? Yeah, for me, not really, Neil, because if you look at uh, what's happened over the course of the summer, if you look from Catalonia on to probably about Silverstone, you saw Lorenzo score something like 15 points. It was a disastrous run of form for him. And now in um Mizano and in Aragon he looked like he found some of that confidence again and as you said like finishing second isn't usually when you expect to see a rider celebrating but uh, for Lorenzo it was just where we where we saw that turn for him where we saw him really find his his form again and find some confidence and that's probably what he's celebrating more so than anything else in those rounds and I think if you look at what will happen on the flyaways he's always very strong at the likes of Sepang the likes of Phillip Island, so he'll feel confident that he can take the fight to Rossi and get back into that second place. But uh, I think uh, when you look at a rider of Lorenzo's quality, just to have seen those peaks and troughs throughout this season, it's been interesting just to see how he's dealt with them because he is one of those riders that we see 
wear his heart in his sleeve to a much greater degree than most writers. And uh, it's just been interesting to look at that dynamic within the team from the outside. And obviously, now that he's leaving as well, you can see just uh, the true colours coming more to the fore as well. Yeah, I think also uh, a lot of um, Lorenzo's slump and also perhaps uh, his success at Aragon was down to uh, tyres. There do seem to be some sort of inconsistency if you like in between certainly in between the feeling of the different tyres uh, Lorenzo was uh, just about decided that he was going to be running the soft um, uh, during the race um, went out on the uh, went out to do two uh, sighting laps uh, before the race went out first on the hard on his spare bike this is the then- hard rear by the way Yes, they have. Yes, this, this is the hard rear. Because oh, again, the, it's one of the things which has made this season really quite interesting. It's been the impact that the um, uh, that Michelin tires have uh, have had, but the the, the Michelin seem to sometimes give a little bit of inconsistency of feeling and he took out the 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 when he took the hard tire out uh for his uh, first sighting lap it felt so much different to the hard rear on uh which he'd used during fp4 when he was thinking about trying to race it um he went out raced that and and and, and did really really well on it so it's just there is this um lorenzo's style requires so much confidence to be able to hold that much corner speed that much lean angle uh all of the time he's right on the limit um you need to have so much confidence in the feedback you're getting from the tires and i think um that that those sort of inconsistencies are of what have punished lorenzo to an extent and so i think it's going to be for the for, for the flyaways i mean there are tracks where he's just outstanding but um if he gets the tires which he doesn't feel comfortable uh, with um it, it he you know he he could easily win he could easily just as easily end up being uh, what you know 12th 13th those sort of places that he's that he's been at, uh, at other tracks yeah and we've seen him we've seen him struggle certainly in the, the cooler temperatures i think we've spoken about this a few times in the show this year uh you look at silverstone he was anonymous there on sunday um and we're going to you know tracks like Mategi and Phillip Island where the temperature isn't always a given um, Phillip Island in particular whenever the race is on later in that afternoon um, and it, it does kind of make you worry whether that will be um, that will be suited to, to Jorge's way of riding yeah I mean Phillip Island could be a prime example and could be really really interesting because he could be absolutely sort of flat out flying build up a massive lead in the first 10 or 15 laps but if the temperature drops uh, you know 4 or 5 degrees 6 7 degrees which it has been been known to do at Phillip Island, uh, then all of a sudden we've got a completely different, uh, a completely different race. I don't think we're going to win. Going to know who's going to win the Phillip Island race until they literally cross the line at the end. Yeah, because that's one of the interesting things for me looking at PI. As, as you both said, the track conditions can change a lot during the race and. If you look at what happened in Aragon, there was a lot of crashes there that were very similar to what we saw in PI in 2014, where I think there was a seven or an eight degree track temperature change through that race. And we saw a lot of crashes when the front end folded, like when riders were bolt upright into the Honda hairpin in different places. So it'd be interesting to see if that kind of thing does repeat itself and how the likes of Lorenzo can deal with it. Because, David, we've we've all talked a lot to Wilco Zielenberg in the past about what makes Lorenzo strong. And it's just having the confidence and that consistency of conditions 
And whenever it changes, somehow sometimes he's just uh, somewhat caught out a bit more than other riders, just probably because of those extreme corner speeds that he carries. Yeah, exactly. He has to have confidence. He has to, that's basically his style requires confidence in the bike and and, and belief in what the tires are going to do. And as long as he has that, then then he's just about unbeatable. But. Um, if anything comes along, because he's also won races in the wet, you know, in the absolutely pouring wet, as long as it's been properly wet and not this sort of, you know, semi-drying, half wet, half uh, half dry and uh, conditions being variable. And variability is what he doesn't like. Yeah. Yeah, because that's actually something that we talked about in commentary at uh, the last round in world superbikes was that the likes of lorenzo are still like you do hear people talking about oh it's wet lorenzo's gonna be struggled but as long as the conditions are consistent he's still able to ride well in the wet he's won a lot of races in the wet in the past it's just about having that confidence in the consistent conditions and if he gets that in the flyaways that's where you you wouldn't be surprised to see him pick up two wins on the flyaways but as you said as well david you wouldn't be surprised to see him pick up two points on the flyaways as well depending on what the conditions are like yeah i thought one of the really interesting things that he said in aragon uh he said this on saturday after qualifying um was that you know obviously so much is made of his, his style being dependent on front end feel and the front end feel offering him stability and good feedback but he was saying that also with uh, the m1 in its current and guys, uh, if you don't have you know that maximum edge grip on the rear, um, that then has you know if the rear is a little bit loose, that then upsets the feeling with the front, and the bike doesn't turn as well. And he said, you know, it's not a bike like the Honda, for instance, which turns well when it's sliding. It, it you know it has to be more kind of in line and smooth, and you know so it's it's not just that front tire feel, you know, the rear and whether it offers a maximum or really good grip on the edge of the tire that also uh, definitely has a big impact. Yeah, I mean, you saw that with the Bridgestones when in 2014, I think, when they introduced the um, heat-resistant edge on the tyre, uh, it took them a few it took them a few races to actually get the balance between the uh, compound and the heat-resistant layer underneath. Um, and basically, what that did is is take a lot of the feel out a, a feel away from um, from. Lorenzo took away his confidence, took away his the, 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 exactly as you say that that uh, feeling on the edge of the rear tire, which allows him to you know to know what he's doing and to push the front and to feel the front. That in the end, well, it, it cost it basically cost him the first half of that season, together with a few problems. And I think uh, he, he we're seeing echoes of that again this year with the with the Michelins. But it's funny you you, you talk about that change because there has been there was an article in the uh, or uh, about the difference between the Yamaha and the Honda, and the Yamaha needing not having that 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 same ability to change. Um, there was an article on a uh, on the Italian Sky webs, uh, well, well, the the website of the Italian broadcaster Sky, uh, talking about Yamaha bringing changes for the uh, for the M1 for New Year, about uh, radical changes to the chassis, which is aimed more at actually getting the bike to turn better, uh, making it more agile, if you like. I mean, the 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 Yamaha is fantastic at changes of direction when you are carrying speed and. Uh, when the track flows um but not so great when you have to do make really really uh, aggressive changes of direction and they're trying to do they're, they're trying to change the uh, bike to to do that more which again it's basically developing the the bike away from lorenzo and more towards 
uh, Rossi more towards uh, Vinales in the future. So, um, uh, yeah, going to be interesting to see the new bike when they finally do debut it. So if you take out Marquez from the championship standings, we have Rossi going into the flyaways, 14 points ahead of Lorenzo. My goodness, it's like 2015 all over again. If you had to put <laughs> your money on one of them to finish second, David, who would you put your money on? If we were still racing on Bridgestones, I'd put my money on Lorenzo. Uh, because we're racing on Michelins, I think the inconsistency, I think um, Rossi is going to be able to cope with the inconsistency a little bit better. So I think Rossi's going to end up um, finishing second. Uh, but I also think that uh, Lorenzo is going to do absolutely everything he can to finish ahead of Rossi just to, you know, stick it to him they're still the two of them really really hate each other quite a lot um and they really haven't got over the end of last year and so they really want to and especially with uh, with lorenzo leaving uh, uh coming out on top this year is going to be even more important than than normal even though it is only for second place and we all know that second place is first loser yes racing cliche tick okay uh steve what about yourself uh, I'll uh, disagree with Dave on this and I'll bet him a fiver that Lorenzo is going to be on top by the end of the season. I think that for me, the difference is going to come down to, as David said, it will come down to who's confident, what the conditions are like. But I think when the bike is working well from Lorenzo is still better than Rossi. And these final races, I think that there'll be good opportunities for Lorenzo to, to get back to form. I think that he's probably just that, that little bit, uh, that little bit more motivated as well. I think he wants to leave Yamaha with with a few wins, and I think that'll be the the difference for him. And it's been a long time since he picked up a win. You're looking all the way back to Mugello, and uh, I think he'll probably, I think he'll win win races in the flyaways. And I I'm not, just not so sure that Rossi will win races. Yeah, if you look just purely at the tracks, you've got to say this advantage Lorenzo because um, uh, Valencia, that is definitely a, a Lorenzo track. Uh, Phillip Island, I mean, everyone is good at Phillip Island, but th th I think in the last years, it feels like Lorenzo has had the upper hand there. Uh, so Pang, maybe Rossi has a bit more of a of an advantage there. Uh, Mategi, really Lorenzo. hard, really hard to say. Mm. Lorenzo definitely Mategi, you'd say. You'd say well, there you go. I mean, it's but again, there is there is. I think Lorenzo has a small uh, has a small ad advantage, and in any other, any other year he would finish ahead of him. But this year, I I think it's going to be more difficult for him. Yeah. Neil, what about you? Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to have to, to, it pains me to say this, but I'm going to have to go with you, David, um, <laughs> because, yeah, you know, Lorenzo, as we've seen um, in the second half of this year, it can be, you know, one week fantastic and another week just, uh, you know, down in the dumps, not really showing any signs of, uh, you know, of th those traits that made him world champion. Sorry, that made him world champion last year, um, and I could just, as we we've kind of mentioned already, I can see us going to somewhere like Mategi and it being cold, or Phillip Island and it being cold, and the temperature's not working to, um, or not finding that opt optimum temperature, and him struggling. So I think Rossi, you know, you could probably see him win one or two of the races in the final four, um, whereas Jorge is such an unknown. So yeah, I think uh, I think Rossi will be will be the man. So are you both willing to put a, a fiver on this? Yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, certainly, certainly. Uh, one question: 
Do we think we could see uh, in the last four races uh, not a single Yamaha victory? Do you think it's possible that, um, uh, say, the Hondas, the Ducatis, uh, the, the Suzukis, because Maverick Vinales has already announced that basically he is going to win Philip Island come hell or high water. Um, <laughs> so do we think we could see the four more races and no Yamaha victories? Absolutely, yes, because I think I think you have to look at Sepang and think Danny Pedrosa is going to do very, very well there. He's going to be tough to beat. And we know that Marquez and Pedrosa both do well at Valencia. I can see Iannone also looking, um, Iannone and Vinales going for the win in Phillip Island. And, well, I would have to say Mategi would on paper suit Lorenzo. I mean, obviously last year didn't go his way in the wet, but if you look at 2014 and 2013, he was spectacularly good there. Um, you know, I'd maybe rate that race in 2013 is one of his best. He was just phenomenal that day. Um, so, But, you know, who knows? Um, well, you know, this season, if it's taught us one thing, it is to expect the unexpected. So, yes, I think it's uh, it's it's very possible. I think it's possible, but I also can't really imagine a scenario where Yamaha with Rossi and Lorenzo don't win one of the last 11 races of a championship. It just, it, it, I, that's why I don't think it'll be possible to see them not win races, just because those two riders are just so strong. The Yamaha is still a good package. It takes an awful lot of factors going against them for them not to win races in the final four, or as I said, in the final 11 races of a championship. So for me, I think that in at least one of these races, we'll see Yamaha win, even though we could easily see a situation where Ducati win at Phillip Island, the Hondas win at Valencia and uh, Sepang, and then just somebody else wins at uh, at Motagi. Anything can happen at Motagi. We saw really bad weather there last year. So in the wet, we already discussed it. Lorenzo, if it's not consistent, he'll struggle in the wet. Uh, but even then, if it's wet, Rossi was really strong there last year and finished in second. Hmm. Well, you said you can't see uh, a Yamaha not winning a race in the last 11 races of the season, but then I presume you also couldn't have seen eight different winners in eight different uh, in eight different races in the middle of the season. So, uh, as you say, this season, all bets are off. Um, I, it's one of the things which has made it certainly absolutely fascinating this year. Yeah, definitely, David. As Neil said, this is the one season where anything can happen and we've seen everything happen nearly, it seems. So I think that uh, if there is going to be a season where we see 11 races without Yamaha picking up a win, it'll be this year. But uh, I just think there's too much quality there for them to go through the entire second half of the championship without winning a race. It's not like it was in 2003 where the Honda was you know, a markedly better bike. Right now we're in a situation where the Yamaha is... Still a good bike, still got two of the top riders on the grid, so I think that we'll see them win races. I think you'd be more confident in seeing a Yamaha win a race than you would in seeing Ducati or Suzuki pick up a second win. All right, another question. Um, uh, a ninth winner. Uh, are we going to see it, and who's it going to be? Um, I'm... I think it's possible. I think it would have to be a total... Uh, well, not a total freak occurrence, but I think you know you would have to see it a wet race, another wet race for it to be, uh, for us to, to see a ninth winner. Um, and really, I mean, if you look at Aston at Saxon Ring, um, I mean, you could take your pick from Petrucci or Davizioso or even Scott Redding, uh, who was shown quite well in Brno before, um, you know, the front tyre sort of started to fall apart. Um, so I think if I, were, if I had to put money on someone, it would probably be Davizioso, um, you know, coming home in a wet race. Yeah, definitely. I think if there is going to be a ninth winner, it's going to, You'd have to look at it and say that Davi has put himself into the right position over the last few years to win races. So you'd imagine it'll be him. But uh, it 
it's also hard to actually say that Dobby's going to win a race. You know, like he's won one MotoGP race in his career and he's had chances, but he hasn't quite been able to make it stick. So I think we're going to be surprised if there's another race winner this year. But, uh, you know, you can't uh, can't rule anything out in uh, in 2016. So we could easily see a situation where Davi just turns up in Motegi and it all falls into place and he wins there. Ducati's won a lot of races there in the past. I think Caparossi won three in a row there. Mm. So, you know, Ducati's used to a bit of success at Motegi. But, uh, yeah, I think for me... We'll see eight winners this year, and uh, that's a, a pretty remarkable feat in itself. I'm willing to make a bold prediction, Andrea Dovizioso at Mategi. We'll we'll put another five point wager on that, David. <laughs> I'm going to be uh, that, that. That's basically my uh, my travel budget for next year. It's going to be cycling everywhere. <laughs> yeah, David will not be at the first three races. <laughs> Is this going to be your excuse for not going to Qatar, Dave? You lost a couple of bets with us. But definitely, definitely, definitely my excuse. Nice, nice. I say, I mean, that's that's MotoGP, but uh, I mean, Moto Two and Moto Three. I mean, Moto Three, the championship's over, but Moto Two, I think every it's all to play for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what looked to be, you know, a championship between Rins and Zarco. Um, you know, the, the small possibility uh, of Sam Lowe's uh, winning the championship. You know, after his performance, not just his performance in Aragon, but really the performance of both Rins and Zarco, um, because both of them are quite disappointing, all things considered. Zarco, you know, thinking that he needs to really change his form and turn it around. And then Rins, I know he was, uh, you know, he wasn't in the best physical shape all weekend. He was um, he was suffering from a bit of gastroenteritis, I think, at, at some points. Um, but even still, it's his home race. And he does have a really good record around Aragon. Um, but he couldn't do no better than sixth. And, you know, it was interesting speaking to Sam Lowe's after the race um, because he, you know, from... Being absolutely sure that the title was over after Silverstone, and then crashing on a Mizano, he was almost double sure. Um, you know, suddenly he thought, "Hold on a second, if I could just, you know, nab a win at Motegi, and these guys are continuing to trip over one another, um, there is a, there is a, still a chance there." And, and in terms of you know choosing a name between Rins and Zarco, it's it's very difficult to choose at this moment because neither guy looks like they want to win this championship at this rate. Yeah, and I think that that's really it, Neil. Is right now Zarco or Rins. If you were to pick one, you're, you're picking the best of a bad bunch right now because on recent form, each of them has struggled since uh, since really Silverstone or thereabouts. And I think uh, it'll be interesting to see what they can do in the flyaways because if for whatever reason something happens in Motegi and suddenly you know the gap to, to Lowe's goes down to like 25 points or something like that, he's right back into play. And I think you're right in saying that uh, after Mizano, Sam definitely would have thought he was out of the championship. But uh, his pace this year will give him a lot of confidence that, you know, at these last four races, he could spring a surprise because he's always gone well at Motegi. Phillip Island's always been a strong track for him as well. So those two races, if he can go out and have uh, have strong results and, and take some points off the top two, suddenly it puts them under pressure. And it's always easier to be the chaser rather than the guy that's got to defend the lead. And, you know, over the last few rounds, we've really seen Zarco come unglued because Silverstone... He, he he was off the pace all weekend in Silverstone and then we saw you know the instant and the the final laps with Lowe's as well and uh, you look at uh, Aragon and he he just didn't seem to have it all weekend Rins had a good recovery in Aragon but uh, I think that uh, this championship really looks like it could uh, continue to to boil over the flyaways. Yeah, I mean, it looks really, really interesting to me because, it, 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 I mean, Rins and Zarco seem 
obsessed with each other. Certainly Zarko, I don't understand Zarko's obsession with Rins. Um, uh, that's all he seems to be looking at. He doesn't seem to be thinking about his own racing at all. Um, he's not focusing on, you know, he's not looking forward to a championship. He seems to be uh, just not really thinking, not really thinking about racing, which is very, very difficult. Um, so I can quite easily see him and Rince getting caught up with each other. If Rince turns his season around, then he can walk away with this, and and just as easily, if Sarko gets tangled up with with Rince too much, then loads his back in it so it makes for it makes for an absolutely fascinating uh, makes for an absolutely fascinating uh, prospect yeah my only hesitation is you know i i think lowes definitely has a chance there's no doubt about that but we're we are going to Mategi where uh where zarko is notoriously strong i think he won his first grand prix there um in one two fives back in 2011 and he i think he maybe uh tied up the championship there last year as well as you know taking a commanding win so I'm less willing to to say that Lowe's is definitely back in the championship right now, um, but if 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 Zarco has a bad race in Japan, then then I, I definitely can see Sam, you know, taking this maybe even all the way to Valencia. Um, so yeah, and I think that's the key thing, really, Neil, is that when you're in a hole of forty points but a hundred up for grabs you're really relying on being able to put pressure on other people by winning races. And I think that, uh, as you said, uh, Zarco is really strong in Motegi, but it's also a track that should play to the strengths of Lowe's, given that uh, you know there's a lot of heavy braking where you have to have the bike pitched into corners and things like that. That suits his sideways style. And he's he has gone well there on the speed up as well, but not being able to really get the results. So maybe now with the Calyx, he'll be able to really take that fight towards the other two. And I think it's it's going to be really interesting just to see what actually happens because like we've all gone into debriefs with uh, Sam after races and you'll talk to him and he'll he'll have to talk himself up almost from, you know, talking in terms of it's been a difficult day to suddenly by the end of the debrief, really sounding confident that he's ready for the race or ready for the next round. Whereas when you talk to him after Aragon, he really seemed he was up for the fight and he didn't need too much encouragement to still think that the championship was still alive. And I think if we look towards Motegi and Phillip Island are the two key races, if he can leave there with, you know, a 25 point deficit to the top of the championship or a 20 point deficit to the top of the championship, he'll really feel like he's got a, a good chance of being able to take that fight to Valencia, but he's got absolutely no margin for error. He's got to go out and win races. And I think that's probably the, the interesting thing for me is that if we look back over the course of the season, when we look at who's really had dominant speed, I think for mo- more of the season, we've seen more potential from Lowe's compared to the likes of Zarco and Rins, even though Rins has been able to reel off a, a lot of wins in the mid-season. If you look at, I think it was Mugello, Catalonia, Assen, Saxon Ring and uh, Austria, he had four wins in a second place. But, uh, you know, if you look at uh, a lot of those races, those factors came against the likes of Lowe's, the likes of Rins. I think in uh, Mugello, we had that red flag. I think without the red flag, Lowe's would have been really strong. We had the track configuration change in Catalonia we had you know a few things that seemed to just really work against Lowe's and the Olin's package more so than uh, Zarco with the WP suspension but that really looks like it's not as much of a factor now at the end of the season than it was at the start of the season in the midfield so both riders should really have a similar package and that's where I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with Zarco, Rins and Lowe's in these final rounds 
because each of them will feel that the bike should be pretty similar and uh, they're all going into MotoGP next year and they all want to end their Moto2 careers with uh, with a couple of wins. So I think we could see some real fireworks over the course of the next four rounds. Okay, so that's everything from part one of the show. We're going to go for a quick ad break and when we come back, we'll have a little more discussion about some of the happenings at Aragon. David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, please remember to leave us a review and a and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, welcome back to the second part of the show. Uh, now, in case any of you listeners are unaware there was a slightly concerning incident uh, on Saturday morning at uh, at Aragon and there was a quite a spectacular collision that occurred between Paul Espargaro and Danilo Petrucci. Espargaro was crashing or crashed as he entered turn two and Petrucci was exiting pit lane at that stage and Petrucci was unaware that Espargaro was crashing and was collected in the incident. Um, Petrucci fell um, got back up, ran back to pit lane and then went back out in free practice three. And then it was slightly concerning to hear him speaking to the press on Saturday afternoon and saying that he had found himself, uh, he, he basically felt that he was lost when he went back out at the end of, of, of FP3. He felt that he had no memory of where he was, he wasn't sure what track he was at and he wasn't sure which way the track went, all of which sounded quite worrying indeed. Um, Steve, you have uh, suffered several concussions in your life. Um, for those of us who haven't, um, can you kind of give us a little bit of detail on, on you know, what, what the symptoms are, how you felt? Yeah, well, I've had uh, five concussions and uh, three of them were playing football. One of them was playing Gaelic football and one of them was when someone crashed into the back of me. And uh, each of them were quite different because obviously your brain's a, a very sensitive organ in your body and it, it just depends on how it gets uh, moved around in, in the course of an accident. And for me, what happened with the, the first time I had one, I was about 12 and it just came from I went up for a header in a football match and basically got pushed around and I landed on my head on a frozen pitch. And later that night I had headaches, I had blurred vision and just that sensation that uh, you're constantly falling whenever you're lying flat. And that was the first time I had a concussion, didn't really know what it was, didn't know how to deal with it. And then over the course of probably the last, the next 15 years, I had four concussions and each of them are very different. The symptoms come on at different times. For me, I had them in one match. They came on instantly. In another case, they came on about 12 hours later. And it really is different for every person, is different for every injury. And obviously, if you come off a motorbike at high speeds in you know a big impact like what we saw from Petrucci, it's going to be very different to what happened to me on a football field. But, uh, you know, the the... The cause can be different, but the effect can be the same. And for me, each time I had one, you feel quite nauseous, you feel dizzy. I didn't have it where I was where I was unable to remember things, but I did have it where I wasn't able to process things in the same way. So even just in terms of being on a football pitch, I wasn't able to to pick up the man I was supposed to be marking quite early enough. I wasn't able to think in terms of how we were supposed to be defending at any given time. I, I wasn't able just to to be as sharp as you should be. 
And obviously, in in the case of a football match, that can lead to you know a mistake where maybe you just don't pick up your man, and the other team can create a, a scoring chance. But in the case of if you're out on a on a on a bike or you're driving a car or anything like that, it could be where you just don't process what's actually happening in front of you quick enough, and it could lead to another accident. And really, the the main difference and the main issue for uh, for most concussions is the risk of a second impact in quick succession usually it can take you know a week two weeks and you should be fully healed from a concussion you'll be able to get back to a normal life but uh, you know in the case of Petrucci's accident or in the case of when I had them playing football really the risk of having a secondary injury is much greater in the immediate aftermath because your brain hasn't had time to heal and it's very easy just to have a much more serious injury the second time because with the the second impact syndrome, as it's called, it's not a, a, a culminative effect. It's more of um, much more of a it's much more serious with each subsequent concussion while you're still injured. And instead of it being like one concussion, two concussions, it's almost as if it's a, a recursive relationship where it could be one concussion and the second concussion could be just the same as having you know four concussions or eight concussions. And it's it's much more it's not a linear uh, sum. It's it's much much more greater than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the difficulty with um, with concussions is that, that they're not uh, predictable in the same way that uh, that you know that the breaking a bone is. As you said, you can bang your head and not know what happened um or feel fine for 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 a few hours and then uh, uh later on suddenly sort of black out and lose lose large parts of your memory and so certainly uh because i think we spoke to uh petrucci what maybe two three four hours after uh after he actually banged his head uh, and so a lot of things have changed in the in the meantime, and it becomes uh, it, it becomes very very difficult to uh, uh, to diagnose. But uh, Neil, you uh, you actually looked into the whole process of, uh, of 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 what actually happened to Petrucci. I think you spoke to someone from Dorna about it. Yeah, well, after um, obviously the, the the sort of initial reaction you have when you hear a rider saying something like that is kind of horror that that they were allowed to go back out on track. Um, obviously, they're not just at a risk to themselves, but you know they're putting everyone else on track um, at risk as well. Um, so I kind of we, we we both spoke to Mike Webb, David, uh, the race director, on Sunday evening, and he was you know, very sure that the, the MotoGP currently has uh, the right protocol in place to, to check and to make sure that riders uh, can be diagnosed successfully um, before they're allowed to go back out on track. Um, but I, I spoke, I think, uh, this week to uh, to Carlos Espaleta. He is the medical liaison to the, the chief medical officer um, of Dorna. And he was obviously there and kind of present whenever they were assessing whether Petrucci should be, um, should be assessed. And what he kind of said was was interesting um, because usually the, the protocol is that whenever a rider crashes, uh, the chief medical officer and his liaison, uh, they will assess the video of the rider's crash. And if it appears that the rider is in any way taking a blow to the head, he'll be asked to go to the medical center and, you know, do scans and, you know, different tests and things like that. What happened in the case of Petrucci was um, if you watch the replay of his crash with his Paulus Bargaro, um, you obviously see the collision and you see Petrucci flying through the air, but his body actually goes out of shot before he lands. And therefore, you don't really know did he if he landed on his shoulder, if he landed on his back or whatever. 
and there was a brief shot of him sitting in the gravel trap but soon i think within a minute or so he was basically up and running away and running back to the back to the pit lane the, you know he's running through the gravel trying to find a scooter um so he could go back and obviously this was in a, a very time sensitive moment um you know the final kind of 20 minutes of, of fp3 everyone's trying to get into to q2 um so you know, initially he thought that Petruccio wasn't showing the signs of someone that had just been banged on the head, on his head because he was up and running. Um, also, what what the the liaison was telling me was that they are also dependent on some marshal reports. So I think one marshal that is at a corner, if someone crashed in front of him, it's the job of the marshal to then, sorry, it's the job of one of the marshals present to then relay um, to the medical officer you know what happened um, whether it looked as as if the the rider fell on his head hit his head or you know fell on whatever part of his body so they know what part to access or to assess um and he was saying that in this instance with petrucci the the marshal didn't pass in any information which suggested that petrucci had hit his head so therefore petrucci went back to pit lane and they didn't fear that anything you know was wrong um, however, on Sunday evening after the race, I, I spoke to someone, you know, that, that would have been in, in Petrucci's garage at this time. And he was saying that it was pretty obvious that, you know, he wasn't all there. Um, and that, you know, he probably, it wasn't a good idea to put him back on, uh, to put him back on the bike. So, yeah, so it's, it's difficult to know. Um, the, the liaison then said that, you know, Petrucci was given a full check on Sunday morning and he was declared fit. Uh, he was declared okay to race. Um, and, you know, it's not obviously being a medical professional. I'm just kind of uh, slightly confused, uh, you know, if he appears to have lost his memory for, you know, part of that morning. Um, is that is that a sign of concussion in itself? Um, is it possible to recover from that in such a short period of time? It's, 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 uh, it's, it's difficult to know. Yeah, I mean, there obviously there is the there's a protocol in place. I think it's is it the cats or the scat? I, I, the I scat. It's the scat. There you go. Scat three. Yes. So there is a protocol in in place for assessing um, uh, for uh, assessing concussions, but that's also based on uh, previous uh, pre season interviews where they have to set a baseline for uh, for it and and they test you against the baseline um uh, but it's i mean it, it it's not just the it, it's not just the medical stuff as you say if there are people in the garage who suspect that uh, their rider is having a problem then really they should also be a certain amount of responsibility at some point there come there comes the point where you as a whatever it might be mechanic team manager whatever say i'm not sure that my rider is right in the head and i think um uh, i think we need to do to step in and do something but the pressures the pressures are, are on them are, are a little bit too high yeah i think david like the one thing to point out as well is that the mechanics and that they're not medical professionals yeah. and for a long time doctors refused to look at the importance and the effect of concussions so you know, I, I wouldn't be in too much of a, a hurry to say that, you know, mechanics or team bosses should be reporting it because for one thing, they don't know what they're dealing with. It does come down to the, you know, the medical team on site. And I think, you know, as Neil said, and as you pointed out as well with the SCAT procedure, there is checks in place. But I think it's also pretty clear that in the case of Petrucci, we had human error in this and a rider was past fit that I think the majority of the paddock and I think even the majority of the, the the medical teams that will be using this as an example for the future will say that, you know, this was a case where, you know, mistakes were made 
and you know luckily um nothing too serious happened from it but i think it is definitely a case where this is something that we can learn from just like in every other accident there's things that uh, you know the fim and the safety teams learn from each accident and this is definitely one where i think uh, you know lessons need to and will be learned from yeah i mean there there are certain uh, i mean the the circuit at each track there is a circuit doctor and the circuit doctor has the final say about uh whether a rider was fit to race or not um there are a lot of positive things about having the final decision in the hands of someone who is not a uh a, a part of the circus because you don't get uh, you know, relationships interfering. You don't get sort of friendships or whatever um, uh, interfering. Uh, having a circuit, having a, a, a stranger, an outsider making a, a decision makes it makes them able to be a little bit more neutral about this. But then, I mean, you also have to ensure that the circuit doctor at each circuit uh, is up to speed on everything and 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 is um, uh, ensuring consistency in behaviours between circuits can be very difficult because one doctor will pass you fit whereas another doctor will will stop you from racing. So uh, in the end, it's always it, it it's just a very difficult subject. And you, I mean, the, the the most important thing is to go back and review, as you said, Steve, go back and review each incident afterwards to see what you can learn and see what you can do better in the future. I think you also have to bear in mind that you, it's very rare that you're going to find a rider that will openly admit that he has received uh, or he has suffered from some form of concussion, even if it is, well, especially if it's very minor. Um, supposedly the, the chief medical officer did go down to Petrucci's garage at the end of the session uh, to check whether he was okay. And Petrucci said, oh, yeah, I'm fine. You know, I'm totally cool. Even though he had just, you know, had a bit of a, had a, well, a bit of a memory blackout while on the bike. Um, and I actually went back and looked at, the, look at the times from FP3. And you can see that when Petrucci goes back out after his fall, it's not as if he was, you know, touring around. He was pretty much doing lap times that were, you know, around about a second slower, less than a second slower than what he was doing before he had had the crash, you know, so there was no real obvious sign um, in terms of his speed, you know, that, that he was really suffering, um, which which makes it even more scary and shows, you know, that, um, you know, he was still largely able to operate himself, but he still had this kind of, um, this feeling, uh, which is, yeah, which is slightly worrying. I was doing a bit of reading about this today, and uh, I saw that in, in rugby union, for instance, I think they, they've they've followed the NFL, obviously, where head injuries are, are, are almost the norm. Um, and some, I, I'm not sure whether, I don't follow rugby closely enough to, to, to know about this, but I think in certain leagues, um, players are required to wear, uh, it's like an earpiece that they, they have, and basically the earpiece is like a little sensor, and it is able to to assess the, the sort of the, the force with which someone is hit. Um, and I think Formula One um, runs a similar system. Is that is that right, Steve? You know more about Formula One than, than I think I do. Yeah, Neil, I actually hadn't been aware that they had uh, crash sensors in the helmets until just the last couple of days when a few people were tweeting about it. But uh, in Formula One, they would have brought in crash sensors inside the car probably about uh, 10, 15 years ago. I think that uh, one of the big 
examples of that was a big crash at Indianapolis when Ralph Schumacher went into the wall, missed a couple of rounds. So the FIA decided that it was important that they were able to see just uh, what kind of impact people were having. So I think at the time it was for an impact over 25 Gs. So once there was that, they realised that they needed to do a full check on the driver just to make sure that they were safe. And I think that was what sort of started them on the path that, as you said, now that they've got uh, sensors inside the helmet that transmit the data back lives that the medical team are able to see exactly what kind of condition a rider is in but uh, definitely something that we probably will need to look at in MotoGP the technologies there um, they also use it in rugby as well was mentioned just so that you're able to see where there's continuous contact and uh, where you're able to see what kind of impact is happening for each of the each of the players on the pitch and I think it is that kind of thing that we'll need to transition to but uh, definitely a case where, where they'll just need to do their research over the course of the, the winter and try and come up with a protocol to put into place. I think for the most part, we've seen that the, the protocols do work within racing. It's just a case of sometimes human error can factor in and sometimes you've just got to learn from the incidents that do happen. And I think that's what will come as a result of the Petrucci incident. Yeah, I mean, one uh, sort of slight side point about concussions because I talked to uh, Dr. Zaza uh, several races ago about uh, about concussions and especially about how they relate to concussions in the NFL and in other sports uh, and specifically about the NFL because it's such a big uh, it's a big question and he basically said that uh, I mean yes concussion can be a problem but it's it's not in any way uh, it's not the same order of magnitude because what you're not having in motorcycle racing is uh, continuous repetitive injuries yeah you might be crashing but you're not banging your head all of, all of the time whereas you know when you're playing uh, american football or you're playing rugby or uh, even football even heading in football um uh, you are subjecting your head to serious impact time after time after time throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire game whereas th- that's very much not the case with with a MotoGP race i mean you hope in a MotoGP race that you actually stay on the bike for most of the time and when you do crash it's quite often or well in most crashes your head uh, doesn't actually touch the uh, doesn't actually touch the ground so uh, i think it's um uh, the chances of picking up a you know repetitive well long term brain damage from concussions are fairly small but definitely sort of the the short-term consequences of it really need to be looked at okay thank you uh, steve and david some very interesting uh, points made in that section there uh we're going to take another short ad break and when we come back we're going to speak a little bit about the french round of the world superbike championship Hey guys, Jensen here. Just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. All right, now back to the show. (laughs) 
So welcome back to the final part of our show. Uh, now we're going to turn our attentions to the World Superbike Championship. Uh, we recently saw the uh, the race in France in Magnicor, the, the double header there. Uh, we only have two more races to go, and I think Jonathan Ray now has a forty eight point champ- uh, forty eight point lead in the championship. Uh, Steve, you were there. Um, we saw a really two magnificent performances from Chaz Davies. I think in the second race he was saying it was up there with you know his best performances of his life. Um, um, and we also saw Jonathan Ray making two quite intelligent uh, races in terms of the championship. Um, what was your assessment of the weekend? Uh, pretty much that, Neil. We saw Jonathan take a, a big step towards the championship. This was a weekend where I think Tom Sykes really could have taken a chunk out of Jonathan in the title chase, but instead we still saw Ray extend his lead. It was a lot like Germany in that way because if you remember back to the Lausus ring, Johnny crashed out of race one because he had another one of those false neutrals, but uh, won race two. And uh, even though he had that non-score, just because Sykes crashed in race two, we saw Jonathan pick up a point on him and just extend that championship lead. And last weekend, we saw another point picked up. And you know the door has been open to Tom time and time again, but he hasn't been able to really capitalize on it. And uh, Manny Core was another example where we saw from Jonathan that... Uh, you know, he'll he'll look to win races and challenge when he can, but uh, the rest of the time he'll just consolidate his points. And in the first race, it was very difficult conditions. We saw riders use slicks, intermediates and wets on the starting grid. And uh, Jonathan just basically matched exactly what Tom was doing with his tire choice on the grid, pitted at the same time as him and just went with the safer option in the pits as well. He used the intermediates, whereas Tom used the slicks came out after the pit stops and just uh, shadowed Tom home. Lost a couple of points in the championship, but was happy just because it was one of those cases where you know there was another round down or another race down, and he only gave up three points in the title chase and then moved on to Sunday. And uh, really, we saw just yet again that uh, in a straight fight, Jonathan's always going to make that move and try and get past Tom, whereas I don't think anyone really has confidence to think that Tom's going to take the same same fight to Jonathan, even with the championship on the line. And that's why we saw Ray extend his championship lead again. We move into the second last round of the championship. Jonathan's 48 points ahead. And really, you'd be very surprised if the championship isn't wrapped up uh, next weekend in Hooray. David, uh, after the, the, the second race, we saw Tom Sykes interviewed, I think, by yourself, Steve. And he was already talking about uh, the battle for second place with Chaz. It was almost as if Tom himself had, uh, had resigned himself to, to losing uh, to losing out in, on the championship and was focusing on securing second place to make sure uh, Kawasaki riders finished first and second. Do you think he was he was right to do that? Is that a ploy to try and put more pressure on Jonathan or is that just him being realistic? I, I mean, uh, looking into the mind of riders is always difficult uh, i think i suspect it was much more of a ploy rather than anything else because certainly it's the first thing that you do um you are trying to sort of lull your opponent into a false sense of security but realistically uh four races 100 points 48 point, uh, you know 100 points on the table and 48 points behind um being winning is not impossible uh but it's 
it requires um, it, it requires Johnny Ray to actually fail, and so far, uh, you know, Jonathan has been incredibly consistent and really fallen off once. Um, uh, apart from that, he's he's, he's really really he, he has really done well, and in fact, uh, I think Tom could have pushed back uh, pushed Holmes ahead of his advantage if he hadn't fallen off in the second race in the uh, in Germany at the Lausitz Ring. So I think he threw away a golden opportunity there. I think it is definitely, um, uh, I mean, Chaz Davis just looked absolutely unstoppable in um, uh, in France. Uh, Manicourt uh, rode brilliantly in the first race, Did chose the perfect strategy. Um, rode absolutely superbly in the uh, in the second race in the dry. Uh, nobody could was really capable of um, uh, of challenging him. So I can re- I can see why Tom Sykes would be a little bit concerned about uh, uh, about Chaz Davis to be uh, to be frank because in this in this form he's looking really quite dangerous. Yeah, I mean we've seen Chaz now score three. Uh three victories in the last four races um, since the summer break was over, Stevie. Um, what was it, what is it in particular, as, as Ducati obviously tested quite a bit um, over the summer in, in different phases, what has kind of brought these, what, sorry, let me start that question again. Uh, what has allowed Chaz to, to perform at this level? We didn't see quite as quite as regularly in the first part of the year. We did actually see it a lot in the first half of the year. It was just uh, from, there was probably a, a section of the season where really Davis lost lost his way, lost his confidence. If you look back to probably, um, say, Donington, Mizano and Laguna, those six races, really, we saw Davis struggle. He had a lot of crashes in those rounds and just lost a lot of confidence. And even at uh, at Mizano as well, just um, didn't really seem to have the, the same feel that we saw early in the season from Davis. And that little section in the mid-season definitely cost Davis a lot because he just lost the feel of the front end. He lost the confidence in the bike. I think if you if you look at uh, Mizano and Donington, there were different crashes just where the front folded on him. Mizano was one crash just where he tapped on the gas and just as the bike transitioned to to in its grip, he uh, he fell and that was really one of those crashes where it saps the rider's confidence because it just takes away that feeling that he has with the bike. And for Davis, really we saw a lot of races come in quick succession where he lost that confidence because this year up until I would say up until Mizano he was probably the best rider in the championship I think what we saw in Aragon Imola especially he was really strong circumstances worked against him at Aston because he could easily have won both races there even though it's a really strong track for Jonathan and uh, you know I think that the the problem for Davis this season really hasn't been anything in particular other than when we came into the season we all thought that there was no margin for error in terms of the championship we all thought that Jonathan was going to be consistent all the way through the year and that the Ducati riders would have to pounce on their opportunities whereas really how it transpired was that uh, once we got through the first couple of rounds we saw that the Ducati was every bit as good as the Kawasaki and uh, Davis had you know just uh probably left himself a little bit of ground to make up, especially with that crash in Phillip Island. And then whenever you factor in Donington, Mizano and Laguna, it just put him in too much of a hole. But I think that right now we've got a situation very similar to what we've seen in MotoGP over the last few years, where the Kawasaki and the Ducati are probably right on a par with each other. They work in very different ways. And uh, I actually talked to, to Chaz after the race in uh, in Magnicor, after race two, and, he, and we talked about the difference between the two bikes and 
you know, where one was strong, where the other was weak, and how difficult it was to actually make an overtaking move. And um, just that uh, that challenge for each of the riders. And, and I think that for me, Davis probably over the course of the season, he hasn't been as consistent as Jonathan because he lost his way, but uh, his peaks have been really high. And that's what gives you confidence for next year. The, the summer tests definitely helped him find that confidence with the bike again. And that's why in... The last two rounds, we've seen three very different wins as well from him. Well, that's interesting, Steve. So can you maybe tell us a little, a few more details about uh, about the, the Kawasaki and the Ducati, where, where Chaz thinks one is stronger than the other and vice versa? Well, actually, we've got uh, we've got audio from it from whenever I was talking to him um, after the French round. So we'll play that in and you'll be able just to hear about the fight for second and how when Chaz was chasing Tom and Johnny in front of him, he just was struggling to make those moves and almost needed to wait on the mistake from uh, the Kawasaki riders to get through. So, obviously, another double win you've done now three times this year already. So, yep. this was probably the most varied, though, obviously, yesterday. Good choice on the grid, but today just took your choice and chance to win the game. Yeah, today was completely different to yesterday because actually it was really hard. On Friday, I went quick, but I was, I was happy ish, but I knew that we needed to find a bit more. Um, and actually Johnny Johnny's pace today was good when he came through on me it was, he was going really quick and obviously Tom took off at the start um, but I didn't have anything in the earlier laps from lap 10 to 15 or from lap 0 to 15 um, it was hard work to try, try and stay as close as possible to them two and they just kept building a couple of tenths a lap a couple of tenths a lap and um, I just I didn't I never at any point did I settle but I just thought nah it's not going to happen today get the head down try to do as much as I could and then I stayed at more or less 38.5 and they ended up dropping off uh, to I guess it must have been high 38-ish mid to high and um, slowly started coming back and I thought I might be able to do it here but then when I got to them it, see, it just kept seesawing the gap. They'd pull a few tenths here and I'd get it back and then I'd get a few more and then I'd get it back. And just because their bikes just has different strengths to mine and they could you know, disappear in places and it would never leave an opportunity to pass. So I did get on the back of them and then they uh, took each other wide and uh, seized the opportunity and, and just went from there. And then my pace was really good to the end and the last four or five laps um, was really good really good pace I put my head down as much as possible um, but uh, it was hard because my bike didn't really vary from the first lap to the last lap it was slick throughout I didn't feel like I could really turn it brilliantly I didn't feel like I had initial initially great grip but then in the last five laps it was it seemed to be okay and they struggled to match that that pace and I, I really you know stepped it up then so. you got in behind the Kawasaki we saw how difficult it is to get past Tom Especially in Adelaide, saw a lot where he just break that deep, but then he's got absolutely nothing mid corner. Yeah. You because they're on the same bike so Johnny can match him and I I don't I'll make time in other places on the track but where the opportunities are to pass here after straights it's a bit, little bit tough for me um, 
<clears throat> so and not not because of speed just because of the way you get onto the straight and how well you get the bike turned and it's a matter of grip more than anything else the fact that you need to have the bike leaned over so much a more bit, yeah seemingly yeah yeah just struggle with struggle with grip today front and rear a bit just to stop me going with them in the early laps um, but then again maybe it worked to our advantage in the last five so um, it wasn't necessarily the strategy to have it work out like that I was I was a little bit disappointed for most of the race because I was trying to stay in contact but um, yeah in the end it worked out fine nine points to take out of Tom as well in that five for seconds and obviously Johnny's out of reach for you now yeah well yeah it's I still feel like it's quite a big big amount of points to try and close up in the last four races but never say never it's um, is the main thing just to end the season with yeah. a good run of results and yeah. then build yourself up for the winter with the summer break being the longest of the year I think it's what two week gap between the end of the season and the start of winter testing mm. it's nearly like the momentum from Germany here Murat and Qatar is what's going to use to springboard into next year yeah yeah. Is there any much development plan and things like that? Or uh, I have to, yeah, there'll be something, but we need to have a, have a bit of a chat and see what we can improve. The package this year, overall, I think if you look at the season as a whole, we went into the year thinking that Kawasaki were going to be, again, dominant bike, but Ducati's really come strong through the season, the mid-season, notwithstanding, yeah. but yeah. overall, where do you think the bike is compared to the Kawasaki? Yeah, now I've got it uh, where I want it more or less today uh, she didn't feel like we were on top form even though it came out with the right result it it was a little bit of a battle you know Lauts ring was was everything clicking um, but I feel like we need to make sure that the days where it doesn't feel top on top form like today I really want to make them you know, make the bike work that little bit better um, so generally it's been this from the summer break the tests in the summer through to now I've been much much happier with the bike and uh, I've had flashes throughout the season of of that feeling but we haven't been able to hold on to it consistently but I think now we find our way a little bit and yeah that's that helps but obviously we still look for a, look for a bit more and I, I think it's there to be had it's just putting all the pieces together just one last thing again looking at next year when Marvel comes in change the team as you worked with them before with very different circumstances whenever you're an established runner in team now compared to when it was BMW. Have you talked to him since he's made the announcement? And yeah, we tested together in Mizano, so he... Is he uh, on the Superbike or just the stock bike? No, he's on the full Superbike. Um, and yeah, he was just you know finding his feet. We chatted on the first day and on the last day, and he's just you know, getting his getting the feeling back and, and everything like that. But I think that he he went around in respectable lap times. So you know, he's Marco Melandri, so he's uh, he'll come back next year, and I'm sure he'll be strong. Um, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So Dave, um, we, we were we were messaging each other through the the, the first World Superbike race. Um, obviously, uh, the conditions were such that riders uh, started, I think most of the riders, the majority of them started on wet tyres and then the track started to dry and we saw riders coming into the pits at different times. Um, I think Nicky Hayden was the first of the, the kind of the front runners to pit for intermediate or dry rubber. Um, do you feel that this was this was a, potentially a chance that, that Hayden missed at winning a race? 
Um, absolutely, I think because uh, I, I think that was my first reaction. You know, the, the Nicky's going to win this. Um, uh, it didn't turn out that way because he had some for some kind of a technical problem. The team were not um, uh, not keen to talk about exactly what the technical problem was. Um, but it certainly looked like um, uh, it, it certainly looked like like Hayden was in with a chance. Um, he made the he, he made the gambled absolutely right, but on on the right time to swap tyres. The question is whether he could have stayed ahead of Chaz because once Chaz. Um, uh, once Chaz Davies' tyres started coming, once the intermediate started giving some grip, then it, it he was just absolutely unstoppable. You saw, I think Michael van der Mark came in one or two laps after uh, Hayden, um, and he ended up second. He looked like he was going to be a very, very, a very, a very competitive, um, but couldn't quite uh, again, couldn't quite keep up with the pace of Chaz. Yeah, it was an engine problem for Nicky in race one, David. But uh, definitely, he made the right decision on when to change tyres. But uh, whether or not he would have been able to beat Chaz, I don't. I don't think he would have been able to beat Chaz. I think he would have been able to beat Mikey. But uh, I think that Chaz probably would have been just a bridge too far in the race. But you know, second and third for Honda would have been a really strong performance in those conditions. And it was another example of where we see just how intelligent a rider Nicky is. Now we 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 all know Nicky over the last few years in MotoGP and. We've seen, you know, the the dedication that he has to the game, but also just how adaptable he is as well. And, you know, I think that uh, this race was a, another example of that, just where Hayden is one of the guys that's always probably more willing to take a risk. And uh, Magni Cor was an example where he saw an opportunity to win. And even though he wants to finish fourth in the championship, winning races is the key thing for Nicky. And that's why he probably gambled earlier than some of the other guys. And it would have paid off if it wasn't for the engine problem. And probably led to a, 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 a you know a podium finish, a second place finish, and just put the pressure on to Van der Mark in that fight for fourth in the title. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly been an, a, an interesting battle between the two of them. And then what we see next year is um, uh, there was the Intermots, the big uh, bike show in, in, in Cologne in Germany uh, uh, earlier this week. And we saw a lot of new bikes being released. Uh, we saw the new Fireblade, um, uh, which has suddenly got a lot more ponies and certainly got a lot more electronics than it's had in the past. Uh, we saw a new, I think, a, a, a Prillia, a new Suzuki again. Uh, which looks like being a lot more competitive. Uh, the World Superbikes next year is shaping up to be very interesting indeed. I saw a video of Marco Melandri uh, hooning the Panigale around the track with uh, um, a, what looked like a way too tri a trite track somewhere near uh, near Rome, I think. But um, uh, uh, again, it looks like next year we it, the championship could be even more exciting. Do you think? Do you think the new blade is going to make a lot of difference? Steve? Well, I think the key thing for the Blade is that people need to remember that it's actually a very good bike right now. The main issue for... Everyone talks about power for the Blade, but that's not really the issue. It's bottom-end power. It's being able to get that drive out of corners because for me, and uh, like Jensen was in uh, Laguna Seca as well, and it was one of the things that we talked about a lot that weekend was just if you stood at the last corner of Laguna, there's a big drag up the hill and you go first, second, third, fourth, fifth gear... And you could see the blade just getting dropped there. And it was in those initial couple of gear changes just where you saw just how much work that uh, Hayden and Van der Mark had to do. So while you know, we'll all talk about you know they need to find more power, 
It's that they need to find more bottom end power and usable power to give the riders that kick out of a corner and then obviously a little bit more top end as well. But I think that what's going to be interesting is that uh, Honda have the standard version, the SP1 version and the SP2 version of the new Fireblade. So when we start the the preseason testing, we'll be able to see what difference it makes. But uh, I know from talking to a lot of people in the paddock, they're not taking anything for granted that Honda's going to make a big step forward. One of the, the key things that I heard over the weekend was uh, a few people really saying that uh, this could be an, an example of where we see Honda make a, a massive step forward, but it's 12 months too late. If they brought this bike out this year, it would be really strong. But next year with new offerings from BMW, from uh, Ducati have an updated bike, Kawasaki will uh, will be trying to make that step forward again for next year because they lost a lot of power with the new regulations. Um, you know, I think it could be a case of maybe just with the moving goal po- posts, Honda make a big step forward, but it's just the same step as what we've seen from other people. Obviously, I think we all want to see the likes of Hayden and Stefan Bradl moves on to that bike as well. We want to see them fighting for wins, but uh, World Superbikes just look so competitive for next year for me that it could be a big challenge. Obviously, uh, uh, Eugene Laverty is going back to uh, World Superbikes. The Aprilia is going to be updated. Um, the team is going to be uh, is going to be having it's going to get a lot more support from Factory Aprilia as well. What do we think Eugene's chances are, uh, Neil? Uh, I mean, you would have to say that, uh, you know, judging by Lorenzo Salvadori's performances this year, um, they've been fairly strong. Um, and I think he has been quite unfortunate not that. Has he stood in the podium yet, Stevie? No, not yet, Neil. No. He's had the last few rounds, he's had potential to get onto the podium, but yeah. just hasn't quite been able to to make that step. Sure. I think at the, at the largest ring we saw that he had the potential to, to be on the podium um, and that support a bike that, you know, is receiving pretty much next to no factory support whatsoever. Um, a pretty seem keen to, you know, put the f- more or less the full support back in behind and show me your setup next year with Eugene Laverty and, and Salvadori there. Um, so I think that's going to be very positive. Um, Romano Elbessiano, the kind of the you know the guy behind British racing efforts uh, was saying in, in Aragon that you know there's going to be a, a team of people that are have experience in the world Superbike paddock that are going to be there um, Eugene has talked about you know working again with the guys that he was with when he was last with the factory in 2012 and 2013 when he very nearly won the championship um, so you know everything would point to that being a very competitive setup the only thing is you know, I, I can see them definitely, you know, being on the podium. Um, the fact that, you know, Jacetti and Kawasaki are already in such strong shape. You have Jonathan Ray, Chaz Davis, you've got to say that those guys, maybe Sykes as well, going into next year will be the, you know, the favourites for the championship. The level's always already very, very high. You've got guys there um, that are very fast and they're already on a sorted package. Um, we've seen this year that Milwaukee just weren't able to gel with BMW. In any way, I think next year will obviously be a lot easier, but we can also imagine that it might take some time for that that kind of setup to gel, you know, with, with SMR, the guys there, and with the pretty factory guys. Um, that's not going to be something that will just click and start working perfectly together from the, you know, from the first moment of testing. That's going to take, that's a relationship that's going to take some time to, to build up. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's going to be a very, very strong package. Um, whether it will be strong enough to, to, to win the World Championship, I think, is uh, you know remains to be seen. 
yeah, I mean, I, I it, 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 completely agree. I think you've got a new. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the SMR team are still finding their feet in the world in the World Superbike Championship. It is a big step up from from World Supers to or from BSB to World Supers. Um, uh, the the uh, Laverty is up against the an unchanged Kawasaki team and uh, Chaz Davies, who's on a th- what is it? This is his third, fourth year on the on the decay. But all of these things, the, these he's up against uh, a stability, and the stability is what is uh, uh, the you know the, the stability of the of the Kawasaki's and of the Ducatis is going to make it uh, a lot more difficult. Um, I do wonder whether someone will actually try and race the Suzuki. I think that could be a very interesting bike to see. Uh, as far as I know, there's no no plans for anyone to try to try to do it, but um, someone might take a punt on that at some point. Yeah, and it's also worth always remembering that every time Suzuki's brought out a brand new GSX-R, it's always been a front runner. It's always been a bike capable of winning races. So someone will take a punt on that bike, but it's quite possible that they might do it in 2018. Um, I think uh, Ollie Rushby had a story in MCN this week talking about how Suzuki are looking to have a factory effort back in BSB, and I think that could be a, a precursor, precursor just to bring that bike into Worlds. We'll see Yoshimura in um, America use the new bike. So maybe between those two outfits um, or those two championships, that would be where you know the baseline will be found for the the new bike, and then they'll bring out a factory uh, superbike world superbike team in twenty eighteen. I think David, like when you were in Mizano as well, we went down and we talked to a lot of riders, and uh, one interesting snippet that we got from a couple of riders was that they all still think that the Aprilia is the best bike on the grid. Are potentially the best bike on the grid if there's enough factory support and that's one thing that i think uh, will be very interesting when you put eugene onto that bike a proven world superbike front runner could easily have been a double world super sport champion a superbike world champion and uh, you put him into a team that hopefully gets the right support hopefully gets uh, themselves working in the right way and that's when we'll really get the test of just how good this this aprilia is and also when we get an insight into how good salvadori is because He's impressed me a lot this year, but uh, you know maybe that's been masked by us not really knowing the full potential of that bike. So put him up against Laverty next year, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that Aprilia goes. Yeah, I mean it was quite obvious that uh, the Yoda Racing project was um, uh, well both underfunded and, and, and not really had any support from Aprilia. So actually, seeing seeing a, an effort with proper backing is uh, is going to make it uh, a, a lot more interesting. Also, one one final thing before we uh, before we finish up, guys, I think we have to. It would be quite rude to to talk about. Uh, the racing at Magni Corn, not mentioned Leon Camier. Again, he was he impressed me a lot in the Lauser's ring. But, you know, at one stage it looked like he possibly could have won the first race. And then another brilliant fourth uh, in race two, um, where he was not that far away from Sykes at the end of the race. Yeah, and definitely, Neil, I think what we've seen from Camier this year is just consistently being able to grind out strong results on that MV. And I think everyone looked at race one as being that race where he was going to get that first podium on the bike and really give MV something to cheer about but uh, a couple of factors worked against him one was that the track was drying obviously and we saw a lot of riders switch to slick tires and I was actually quite critical in the commentary about why Camier didn't pit because it was perfectly obvious that uh, he was going to run out of the opportunity of, of standing on the podium just because of the time he was losing and I thought that the team should have called him in and that they should have made the change 
But uh, speaking to Leon after the race, he said that uh, the reason that he wasn't called in was because the swing arm that they have on the MV means that it takes a lot longer for them to change the rear tyre. So any time that uh, they would have potentially gained from changing the tyre would have been lost in the pit stop. And the net effect of it was that uh, it was probably more beneficial to stay out on track even though he was on the wrong tyres rather than pit for the, the, the change of tyres. So a bit of circumstances working against Camier there, but definitely this has been a season where he's really shown how good he can be. And you know we saw whenever he made the replacement rides in MotoGP, we've seen him in British Championship, just how strong he can be. And it's fantastic just to see him really make that step and uh, be this strong in the World Championship as well. Dave, do you have anything to add? Oh, no, well, just yes, to uh, to add to the consistency that uh, the Camier has, uh, has displayed. He's been, uh, given the right given the right circumstances, he's clearly been able to be quite impressive. Uh, I think his biggest problem has been that um, um, the, I mean, it's, Nominally a factory, uh, factory MV Augusta, but the uh, uh, level of investment from the factory in that team is, uh, well, I mean, basically it's a very, very poor factory. They don't have a lot of money, and and they don't have a lot of money to go uh, to to go racing with, so it, they haven't been able to do very much with it. Um, and I think also, I mean, Camier is one of the riders who you feel that. Uh, he never really had the right breaks. Never really had the had the right opportunities. And if he had, if they, if things had broken a couple of the, the d- differently, um, a couple of times in his career, it could have been a very mu- a much more successful career because he's obviously uh, extremely talented. Given the results which he's posted on some of these uh, some of the bikes he's been on. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, sweet. Uh, just just one other thing as well. Um, we saw in World Supersport again just a, another really impressive performance from Nicky Tooley and uh, I think it's worth mentioning just how good that performance was. I know like in our uh, in our WhatsApp group we, we all sort of talked about the Supersport race as well just and the, the fact that uh, you know Tooley's been able to bring the fight to Safoglu and Cluzel on a consistent basis in Germany and France and he's finished second both times. He's the two fastest laps. And uh, I think it's definitely absolutely, been and also considering that he's on an R six, which has been virtually unchanged for years and years, uh, it's still an incredibly impressive bike, really. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing Tuli. I think Tuli's going to be a full time contestant in World Supersport next year uh, with the Calio group, with the Calio team. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that works out. He ain't no fully, Nicky Tuli. <laughs> Yeah, let's edit that out. <laughs> okay, gentlemen. Yes, indeed. So I think that pretty much brings our discussion to a close. Um, I would like to thank Mr. David Emmett of Motor Matters for joining us today. I'm glad to see you're up and walking again, David. Thank you very much. I'd also like to extend my warm gratitude to Stephen English, uh, World Superbike commentator extraordinaire. Thank you, Steve, for joining us too. Thanks, Neil. Always a pleasure. And thank you very much for joining us as well, listener. Um, apologies again for the, the tardiness of the show, um, but thank you for sticking with us and for listening in. Now is probably as good a time as any to just remind you that if you're not already following us on Facebook, could you please do that? That is at facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. Also on Twitter, you can find us at Paddock Pass pod. And 
always remember that if you're listening to us through iTunes, to please go there and leave us a review as it greatly helps other listeners find our show. So we'll be back during the flyaways with uh, some roundup for the upcoming MotoGP runs. Look forward to your company then. Thank you. Bye-bye. Life got you down. Listen to the Paddock Pass podcast. <laughs> Missing that ex-girlfriend? Listen to the Paddock Pass podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Could do that, yeah. Brexit getting you down? <laughs> okay, better not make this too political. Uh, <laughs> Feeling depressed about life getting in the way? Listen to the uplifting tones of Neil Morrison, <laughs> David Abbott and Steve English. Talk about shite. <laughs> Okay. Uh, JB, I wouldn't use that one, actually. That's probably not the best one. Yeah, <laughs> well, we'll refrain from that one, Stephen. Uh, okay, so Dave.